I read that same psalm on uh, page 543 in your pew Bibles. We looked last week at Psalm 26 and David's cry for vindication in the midst of false accusations that were made against him. And uh, here we see something of the same continue in Psalm 27. Superscription tells us it is a psalm of David. And he says, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war rise against me, yet I will be confident. One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud, be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger, O you who have been my help. Cast me not off. Forsake me not, O God of my salvation. For my father and mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me And they breathe out violence. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong. And let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Love it as we look at at Psalm 27 here next to to Psalm 26. we, We see several similarities you recall last week when we looked at, at Psalm 26, the whole context was, was the false accusations that David, the, the innocent king, was protesting. And now in, in Psalm 27, 12, we see the same thing. It says, false witnesses have risen up against me and they breathe out violence. These are those same bloodthirsty men of Psalm 26, 9, who by their false accusations wish to have David killed. And yet he cries out in both Psalm 26, 12 and Psalm 27, 11 for God to lift him up and place his feet on level ground or a, a level path. You see that same phrase in both Psalms. A confidence that God will not give him over to the will of his adversaries, but he will stand in the great assembly, the, the land of the living, to bless the Lord and look upon his goodness. There is in both Psalms a a desire ultimately to look upon God's presence. In Psalm 26, he wants to go around God's altar. He loves the habitation of his house, the place where his glory dwells. See that in Psalm 26, verses 6 to 8. 
And then in Psalm 27, dwelling in that same place is the one thing that he seeks after. You see that in verse 4, in verse 6, in verse 8, in verse 13. It's all over this psalm. His life is in danger because of false men who, who, or men who bring false accusations against him. But David trusts the Lord. And what he desires most is to behold God's beauty in his tabernacle. That's the one thing that David seeks after, the one thing that his heart desires. His prayer for God to save him is so that he might worship God in his house. We learn something from this psalm about the one thing that not only David desires, but that we should desire too, to behold God's beauty and to dwell in his presence. That is David's one all-consuming passion and should be ours too, as it was David's and as it was Christ's. Much like David in this psalm, when wicked men breathed out violence against him and false accusations, trusted the Lord to deliver him into his presence. We'll look this afternoon at David's confident cry to behold God's beauty, Christ's confident cry, and the Christian's confident cry in him, and pray that God would use it to make us more and more desire also this one thing. Let me first... At David's confident cry, it is a cry we see from the very beginning of the psalm in the midst of darkness, and a cry also in the midst of danger. We, we see that from verse 1. Those are those two images that, that David uses of God being his light and God being his stronghold imply that David is in a dark place in need of light, and that David is in a battle in need of protection, where evildoers assail him. They want to eat up his flesh. An army encamps against him. Verse 3 says, war arises against me. Take this to be a threat of actual death. In one of those seasons where where David is on the run from an army, perhaps that of Saul, who who sought his life with false accusations and words of violence, like we see in verse 12, seeking to devour him and eat up his flesh. Like the ravenous dogs and lions of of Psalm 22, David speaks of these enemies as trying to devour him. And because they are, and on account of that he's, he's running for his life, David is not able to come into God's presence in the place of, of public worship that is the tabernacle. He, he's cut off from access to it as, as he's on the run. He's, he's in exile, so to speak. And yet we see at several points throughout this psalm that that is the one thing that he desires most. Verse 4, one thing have I asked of the Lord, and that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon his beauty and inquire in his temple. Verse 6, is this same desire and his confidence that God will, will lift him up to a place of military victory in the presence of his enemies. To what end? But that he might go into God's tent with a sacrifice of thanksgiving. Again, he's desiring to go into the place of worship. Then in verses 8 and 9, we see him again seeking God's face, lamenting the the very idea of God's special presence remaining hidden from him, which he then overcomes in verse 13 as he confidently declares that he will look upon the beauty of the Lord, the, the goodness of the Lord in the land 
of the living. In every section of this psalm, David expresses his earnest, singular desire to be brought back into God's presence where he might behold God's face unhindered. That is his heart's desire. As he cries out for it in this psalm, he's confident that God will grant it. You see that confidence in verse 1 where where he says that he has nothing to fear because God is his light, his salvation, and his stronghold. Remember, he's promised that David will sit on the throne. And so David is confident that the schemes of these enemies will not prevail. What he does is is he looks at God's promise and and he looks at the pressures all around him. he, He says, in light of God's promise, I will not fear. What can man do to me of whom... Shall I be afraid? Calvin said what what David does in these verses is is he weighs his his troubles against God and and he considers God as far outweighing them. He, He weighs in the scales the whole power of earth and hell and counts it as lighter than a feather in comparison to God who far outweighs the whole. The answer, Calvin says, to our fear when we're feeling overwhelmed by, by pressures all around us, by, by enemies, the answer, Calvin says, to that fear is a bigger view of God. As Ed Welch has, has written, when people are big and God is small, we become fearful. When God is big in our mind's eye, those, those people and those enemies become small. The way to, to put to flight our fears is by looking to our strong God and reminding ourselves that he is for us. That's what David does in verse 1. Leading him to believe in verse 2 that his enemies are going to stumble. It's they who stumble and fall, he says. Though an army encamp against me, my heart will not fear but will be confident. And that confidence includes, in verse 4, confidence that God will grant David the one thing for which he has asked, that he might dwell in God's house all his days to inquire in his temple and to gaze upon God's beauty. David is confident that God will deliver him from death and bring him back from exile to do just that, to worship him. Although he is banished from his country, bereft of his family, as, as verse 10 seems to suggest, dispossessed of all that he has, what David desires most is, is not the recovery of those things, but, but restoration into God's presence. In his sanctuary, that, that's what he longs for most. Again, to quote Calvin, it was more bitter for David to be exiled from God's house than denied access to his own house. The thing that David desires most is to go into God's presence and to gaze upon his beauty. And it's worth reflecting for a moment, perhaps, what is is the connection here between going into God's house, his his temple or or tabernacle, and, and beholding his beauty? What was it that David saw there that revealed the beauty of God? Well, David saw God's beauty in, in his gracious condescension, the very fact that, that the, the great God of heaven would desire there to be a place where God might meet with his people. We, we see God's beauty and the gracious condescension, the very existence of the temple, that which symbolized his, his presence, meeting with his people. 
And yet, not only do we see God's beauty in the very fact of the temple and the gracious condescension that it symbolized, but, but we see God's beauty in, in the atonement that there was made. And we see and even hear God's beauty in, in the revelation that there was given. That's what David longed to see and behold. And because of the promises that God had made to David, he is confident that he will. That God will hide him in his shelter, deliver him in this day of trouble, conceal him under the cover of his tent, lift him high upon a rock, and lift his head above his enemies so that he might go into God's tent and offer sacrifices with shouts of joy. The end goal of David's deliverance is to worship God in his temple. That's what he desires. That's what he believes God will do. And it's what makes him cry out in verse 7, saying, Lord, you have said, seek my face. And, and my heart says, your face do I seek. Don't, don't hide it from me. Don't turn away your face in anger and cast me off, but let me see it. That's the heart of his cry in, in verses 7 to 10, for which reason he says, lead me on a level path and do not give me up to the will of my adversaries who breathe out violence, but deliver me from death so that I might look upon your goodness. Do you see that again at the end of the psalm, the the same thing for which he asked in verse 4 and verse 8, to to look upon God's beauty. He longs for again in verse 13. It's that for which he waits in verse 14. His all-consuming passion, his one desire is to look upon God's beauty in God's house. Zeal for God's house consumes him. As he said in Psalm 26, he loves the habitation of God's house, the place where his glory dwells. Can you say that of yourself? Can you say with Dave that you love to go to the place where God meets with his people because it's there that you gaze upon his beauty in word and sacrament? It's there that, that, that you gaze upon the beauty of God and his gracious condescension to meet with us, that, that we gaze upon the beauty of God and revealing his very self in his word, that we gaze upon the beauty of God, the atonement that, that we come to celebrate and hear proclaimed and be assured of. Gazing upon God's beauty is David's singular desire. It should be ours too. And for him, because it is his singular desire, he then speaks to himself in verse 14 and says, wait. Here he's not speaking to to the the congregation or the nation, but the the language that's used in verse 14 is, is in the singular. He's speaking to himself and saying, wait for the Lord, David, be strong. Let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. And trust that in his timing, he will bring you in to his presence. That's how the psalm ends, with God's king in danger, having expressed his desire, and now depending on the Lord to answer. And I would suggest, it won't surprise you, that that in the king's desire here, in the midst of danger, in his dependence on the Lord to bring him back into his presence as promised, we see a shadow of David's son. The confident cry of the Christ of Calvary, who also knew the darkness of, of which David spoke. You think of the darkness of Gethsemane or the darkness of those three hours on the cross where it says darkness cover the earth. 
He did not fear because God was his light, his fortress against those armies encamped against him, literally. Soldiers coming for him, mocking him, the the false witnesses of verse 12 in whom we see a shadow of, of the false witnesses in Matthew 26 who seek to kill David's son by coming out with all kinds of lies, breathing out violence. They try to devour his flesh, verse 2. As I said, I don't take as a reference to cannibalism, but the, the picture is that of Psalm 22. These enemies are like ravenous lions. Their, their mouths opened up that they might consume him. I think David's saying the same thing here that he does in Psalm 22, verses 13 and 16. Whereas we know in Psalm 22, he was speaking as a prophet of the Christ to come. So here. I believe that the Gospels actually give us a little nod at this in John chapter 18 when when the band of soldiers, the, the army that comes against Christ in Gethsemane, stumbles and falls when he identifies himself to them. Remember, he, he asks them, who, who are you seeking? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth. And, and Jesus steps forward and says, I am he. And John says, they, they drew back and they all fell to the ground. I think John includes that as a nod to Psalm 27, verse 2. An army of adversaries and foes induced by false witnesses rise up against the the innocent king to devour him and seek his life that he does not fear, but it's they who stumble and fall as a little harbinger of their eventual demise and his deliverance, where God will deliver him in his day of trouble and lift him high upon a rock, lifting his head high above his enemies all around him. And that language is actually language of, of military victory, that language of lifting up his head. It's, it's used in Messianic Psalms like Psalm 110 where it says at the very end of that psalm, we read it last week, this priest king after the order of Melchizedek that he will drink from the brook by the way and he will lift up his head. Or this language is also used in, in Psalm 3. It speaks of, of God delivering his king from his enemies and, and restoring to him the royal honor that they sought to rob him of. That's what God does for Christ in his day of trouble. He lifts up his head in the resurrection where he declares him to the son of God in power and exalts him to the highest place, bringing him in to his heavenly temple with shouts of joy. Does that not sound a little bit like the resurrection and ascension? Where where though David in this psalm was speaking of his confidence of God saving him from death, these words equally apply to Christ being saved through death. Just as David, when exiled from God's presence in the sanctuary, looked forward to his deliverance, meaning most of all that he would have access back into that place, so Christ, when when exiled, so to speak, from God's heavenly presence to which the tabernacle pointed, he trusted that God would restore him back into his presence, not by saving him from death, but through it. He would be glorious in the presence of his enemies, his head lifted high in victory to enter into God's heavenly tent of verse 6 with shouts of praise. The land of the living, of which verse 13 speaks, where he looks upon the goodness of the Lord all the days of his life. The house of the Lord in verse 4, in which he longed to dwell, is in Psalm 23, all the days of his life. Every line of this psalm is applicable not only to David, but to his son, in whose confident cry David's found its echo. 
Just as, as David said, I will not fear. God is my light. So Christ could say that the darkness of Gethsemane, the darkness of the cross, Jehovah is my light. Whom shall I fear? As David's enemies stumbled and fell, so Christ's. As David longed in the midst of, of his exile from the temple to be brought back into God's glorious presence, so Christ longed to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of his life and to gaze upon his beauty, his head lifted high in victory, then enter in with shouts of praise. As David sought his face and said, hide not your face from me, so Christ, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And as David spoke in verse 10 of of the possibility of even his family and those closest to him forsaking him, so Christ knew what it was to have his own family in Mark chapter 3 think that he was out of his mind. Or to have one of his closest friends betray him. The rest of his disciples flee. The, The close inner circle of three fall asleep in his hour of greatest need. Jesus knew that the loneliness and forsakenness of verse 10 of which David spoke. But the Lord took him in, saying, this is my beloved son. Many commentators actually think verse 10 has has royal connotations, hearkening back to that idea in Psalm 2 of, of the king being God's royal son. Who even if mother and father would forsake him, God takes him in and says, you are my son today, I have begotten you. And he leads him on level ground, gives him not up to the will of his adversaries who breathe out violence with their false accusations, but delivers him into the land of the living where he will look upon the goodness of the Lord all the days of his life. This psalm of David is echoed in the experience of Christ who, who would have sang it during his earthly sojourn and found great comfort in it, knowing that what was true of his father David was true of him. And in Christ, it's also true of you. As David's confident cry, which becomes Christ's confident cry, is, is given also to us that we might sing it with him. As Bonar said, because the church's head can lay claim to every clause of this blessed psalm, so may the church. In fact, not only that, but, but Christ becomes the, the, the reason for our confidence as, as we sing this psalm. He is our light in verse 1, the light of the world, for for whose sake we need not fear. Who when enemies and evildoers assail us, we can trust he will deliver us. As we confess in Lord's Day 19, he'll cast all his enemies and mine into everlasting destruction, but take me and all his chosen ones to himself into the joy and glory of heaven. He will make us gaze upon the beauty of God in in the face of, of his own person. 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and chapter 4 say that the beauty and glory of God are revealed supremely in the face of Jesus Christ. The same thing that Mary beheld when Martha was busy at work while Mary lay at the feet of Christ. And Martha said, Jesus, won't you, won't you tell her to, to get busy working with me? And Jesus says, Mary has chosen the good portion. She has chosen the one thing necessary, gazing upon my beauty. For the Christian, verse 4 is fulfilled in looking to him and seeing the beauty of God in, in the temple that is the person of Jesus Christ who graciously condescends to, to reveal God's will to us and, and make atonement for us. 
And we gaze upon that beauty in the temple of Christ's own person in part now as we gather for worship. But that gazing upon his beauty will find its full realization in that heavenly temple where we will gaze upon his beauty forever. As he restores us to himself, not, not just from death, but, but through death into his presence with shouts of joy to seek his face and look upon his goodness in the land of the living all the days of our life. As we'll sing a little bit later, the king there in his beauty without a veil is seen. It were a well-spent journey, though seven deaths lay between. The Lamb with his fair army doth on Mount Zion stand, and glory, glory dwelleth in Emmanuel's land. O Christ, he is the fountain, the deep, sweet well of love. The, The streams on earth I've tasted, more deep I'll drink above. There to an ocean fullness his mercy doth expand, and glory, glory dwelleth in Emmanuel's land. For the bride eyes not her garment, but her dear bridegroom's face. I will not gaze at glory, but on my king of grace, not at the crown he gifteth, but at his pierced hand, the lamb in all his glory, or is all the glory of Emmanuel's land. That hymn was actually based on the letters of Samuel Rutherford and, and, and the great longing that he expressed for that one thing that, that we are to seek after, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord in his heavenly temple, the land of the living for all eternity. He wrote, our, our love to him should begin on earth as it will be in heaven, for the bride taketh not by a thousand degrees so much delight in her wedding garment as she does in her bridegroom. So we, in the life to come, albeit clothed with glory as with a robe, shall not be so much affected with the glory that goeth about us as with the bridegroom's joyful face and presence. Worth dying, he said, ten times to see a sight of him. Ten thousand deaths were no great price to give for him, the fairest flower of heaven, the loveliest person among the children of men who graces heaven and all his father's house with his presence as a rose that beautifies all the upper garden of God. I would not exchange for him, I would not exchange him for ten worlds of glory, he says. How ravishing is his beauty and how sweet and and powerful his voice. I would rather look through the the whole of Christ's door and see but one half of his fairest and most beautiful face than enjoy the the fairest flower and bloom and chiefest excellency of ten worlds. Put the beauty of ten thousand thousand worlds of paradises like the Garden of Eden in one. Put all trees, flowers, smells, colors, tastes, joys, sweetness, loveliness in one. And yet it would be less to that fair and dearest, well-beloved Christ than one drop of rain to the whole seas, rivers, lakes, and fountains of ten thousand earths. He is earth's wonder and heaven's wonder. He is altogether lovely. Rutherford knew something of that longing that the psalmist expresses in verse 4, to behold the glory and beauty of God in the face of Jesus Christ. His well-beloved, chief among 10,000, the fairest flower of heaven, the beautiful one of whom the bride sings in the song of songs, the angels in heaven never tire of praising. 
Could you say with Rutherford that you would rather look through the whole of Christ's door to see but one half of his most beautiful face than to enjoy the riches and glory and beauty of ten worlds? Or that if you put all the beauty of of 10,000, 1,000 paradises together, it would be but one drop in comparison to the ocean of Christ's beauty that will behold all the days of our life as we worship him in glory. Do you long for that like David did? Like Rutherford and Edwards? Until you get that vision, do you, do you cry out with them in verses 7 to 10 saying, Lord, let me see your face. Confident, verse 13, that you will. That you will look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living for all eternity and it will satisfy you like nothing else can. Love this, this psalm is meant to move us more and more to desire that, that one thing, to behold the glory and beauty of God in his heavenly temple and rejoice in it all the days of our life. Even as we face enemies like David and, and Christ do throughout this psalm, even that last enemy death, trusting the Lord will deliver us into his presence and will gaze upon his beauty forever by grace through faith, because the one sacrifice of Christ on the cross who makes a way for us, who who graciously condescends to, to make atonement for us that we might behold God's beautiful face both now and forever. That, beloved, is the blessed hope, the, the beatific vision for which we were made and for which we wait with the psalmist in verse 14, confident that glory awaits us. Jehovah is our light and we need not fear for there is coming a day when the brightness of his beauty will fill the earth and there will be no more darkness, no need of of sun or moon for the glory of God in Christ will be our light and he will swallow up death forever and will behold his face. That's the hope that strengthens us in the trials of this life. The brightness of of the beauty that awaits us which far outweighs the trials of this life. And so with David, speak to yourself in verse 14 in the midst of those trials and say, wait for the Lord, be strong, let your heart take courage. Don't listen to yourself as as we're so often prone to do in the midst of our trials. But speak to yourself this gospel hope that you will look upon the goodness and beauty of the Lord and the land of the living all the days of your life. Even so come Lord Jesus. Amen. Father, would you make this hope and desire more and more to be ours that our one singular desire would be to behold your beauty. Like David, more than than earthly needs and and human fellowship, more than the love of, of even our own family, we would long to behold your beauty. Both now as we gather in the place where you meet with us to behold the beauty of your son and word and sacrament and forever in glory where Christ will be our light We will need no sun or moon nor nor light of lamp. 
that the Lamb will be our light, and that heavenly temple where we will behold your glory and beauty in the face of your Son, that fairest among 10,000. Help us, Father, to long for that and to comprehend something of what, what, what David and, and what Rutherford and, and men like Edwards did about the all-surpassing beauty of Jesus Christ. So that would be our greatest joy both now and forever. It would help us even to overcome the, the trials and fears and afflictions of this life as we look ahead to glory and say to our souls, wait for the Lord. Be strong, let your heart take courage. Even so, come Lord Jesus. Amen.